0: Today's episode of Hidden Forces is made possible by listeners like you. For more information about this week's episode or for easy access to related programming, visit our website at hiddenforces.io and subscribe to our free email list. If you listen to the show on your Apple Podcast app, remember, you can give us a review. Each review helps more people find the show and join our amazing community. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. What's up, everybody? My guest on this episode of Hidden Forces is Rick Rule, President and CEO of Sprott US Holdings and Senior Managing Director of Sprott INC, a global alternative asset manager focused on precious metals and real assets, serving 200,000 clients with approximately $12 billion in assets under management worldwide. After spending most of the last decade. In a period of prolonged underperformance, gold has spent the last two years on a tear, up 67% since September 2018. And with the exception of a sharp dip during the heights of the COVID-19 outbreak, the rise has been steep and more or less uninterrupted. My goal with today's episode is to introduce Hidden Forces listeners to this category not just to gold, but to the entire natural resource industry, though admittedly gold is at the very top of that list. To this point, we discuss gold both as a physical commodity, something that needs to be prospected, mined, extracted, refined, and stored, and as an investment in the form of bullion, equities, and derivatives. We also spend time in the regular episode discussing gold in philosophical terms. What is it? What is it that gives gold its value? Is it a hedge? Is it insurance? And if so, insurance against what? And is it possible to even think about gold without thinking about the macro economy, credit markets, and ultimately people's faith in the institution of paper money? Other topics include the supply and demand side drivers of the gold price, what Rick sees in terms of changing institutional demand for gold, How the mining industry has changed over the last few decades, the relationship of gold to silver and where the silver market is trending, the use of public ledgers and blockchain related technologies in the precious metals industry, and much, much more. For Hidden Forces listeners who are investors in the space, Rick and the team at Sprott have offered to review your natural resource portfolio free of charge, which you can send to them directly at sprottusa.com rankings, And given that this is an investment related episode, I want to be absolutely clear that nothing that I say during the course of today's conversation can or should be viewed as financial advice. All opinions expressed by me and my guests are solely our own opinions and should not be relied upon as the basis for financial decisions. Lastly, I want to remind everyone that Hidden Forces is listener supported. We don't advertise. If you want to learn more about how to support the show and gain access to our premium overtime feed so you can listen to the second half of my conversation with Rick, download the transcript or read through the episode rundown, head over to patreon.com slash hidden forces where you can learn all about it. And with that, please enjoy today's conversation with my guest, Rick Rule. Rick Rule. Welcome to Hidden Forces. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you. No, the the pleasure is all mine. It's great having you on the program. We're going to talk about a lot today. Obviously, gold is at the very top of that list, but you're someone who is in the natural resource space, and you've been in the space for, what, I think close to four decades now?
1: Embarrassingly, yes. (laughs) If you start young uh, and then live a long time, that's what happens.
0: Yeah. So, why don't you, for those of our listeners who may not be familiar with you or or your background, maybe you could give us a sense of how you got started in this space in, in the natural resource and commodity business.
1: I had an interest in natural resources and basic industries from a very young age, really from my teens. I was fascinated by geology, but also interested in forestry and agriculture. The only degree granting institution in North America that had a degree in natural resource finance was the University of British Columbia at that time. So I emigrated from the United States to Canada, I believe it was 1970. And I've been you know, principally interested in natural resource and precious metals finance and investing ever since. There have been times in my career when I have attempted to do natural resources and other businesses, but I understand resource-based businesses and financial services businesses fairly well. So, with very few exceptions, I don't stray outside my area of expertise at all anymore.
0: So, what drew you to the industry in the first place? Like, What was it that attracted you to it?
1: Well, ironically, as a young man, because I like to be out of doors, and I thought that geology, agriculture, forestry, things like that would take me out of doors. The consequence of my success in the business is I've been confined to a desk (laughs) almost ever since. But I (laughs) uh, I also like the certainty associated with resources. Certainty is an interesting word because they're extremely cyclical. But one of the things I've learned over the course of my career is that in cyclical businesses like resources- Bear markets, when everything feels bad, are the authors of bull markets when things are going to be good. And bull markets, when everything is going well, are the authors of bear markets. And so that one realization has served me well in the industry. I guess the third reason is I grew up in uh, Silicon Valley, really, San Jose, California. And I remember hearing fairly early on, 30 or 35 years ago, that the median economic life expectancy of many technological innovations is 18 months before somebody builds a better one. And the idea that by the time I understood a business proposition that it would be irrelevant uh, didn't strike me as a good thing. The business cycles associated with things like coal and paper and power and bricks, have seemed to me to be easier to understand. Not the same as easy, but easier to understand than other areas, particularly technologically related areas. So when you say they're cyclical, is that because
0: they're so capital intensive?
1: That's a great observation. That's one of the reasons that they're cyclical. They're also unusually centered around the business cycle. Because commodities as a consequence of technology are an increasingly small part of the total cost of a finished product, demand for commodities tends to be fairly insensitive to price. An example would be in platinum right now. It takes $125 worth of platinum in a catalytic converter to enable one to attain the emissions required to sell a $50,000 or $60,000 car. If the price of platinum doubled, it wouldn't change the finished price of the car. So when auto sales go up, as an example, it can impact platinum demand and the price can go up without impact, without the fact that the price went up impacting the demand. So the prices of commodities vary really dramatically. You know, witness, as an example, crude oil prices over the last 30 years. Hmm.
0: So, that actually raises another question, which is maybe why you find yourself so much indoors, which is that um, there's the, the financial side of this uh, it, industry is very interesting. And I wonder to what degree, as you spend time in the space, your interests shifted to the financial side, and, and how interesting is that part of the business for you?
1: I started really on the financial side rather than on the operating side, and While all of the industry is of interest to me, I started my life as a, my career as a credit analyst, and I was reasonably successful as a credit analyst. But in terms of employing it, necessarily, I guess you're employed indoors. You maybe are explaining an instrument to a bank. You're explaining a credit structure or a capital structure to an issuer. You're explaining the efficacy of an investment to an investor. The other thing that happened is that although very early in my career when I couldn't afford any backup, I did a lot of my own technical work, which is to say I attempted to do my own geology, I attempted to do my own site visits. It became clear to me as soon as I could afford to hire somebody who was better than I technically and mercifully, that happened fairly quickly that everyone was served better. There were certain things that I could do that the geologists or the engineers couldn't do. And there were certainly things that they could do, things that they could see that I couldn't see. And so, although I've always enjoyed the site visits and I've always learned a lot from them, the truth is that the highest and best use of my time is not necessarily on site visits. Although I still do them from time to time Principally, I, I guess to learn about the non-technical aspects of a, a company's culture, whether or not the safety culture is good, whether or not there is a feel of operational efficiency, something as simple as whether or not the labor force is happy, smiling, approachable, proud, those types of things.
0: Hmm. Well, it's also interesting because the nature of the natural resource business, depending on the commodity, can be extremely risky, both politically, but also in terms of personal, physical safety, depending on where some of these mines are located, including in the case of gold. You know, so the, the focus today is on gold, or I, I that's sort of how I imagine it. But I also am very curious to know not only how and where else Sprout invests but also where your interests are, and if there are any kind of exciting prospects for the future of the natural resource industry that you're interested in, maybe water. I know you've talked about uranium before. I'm not sure to what a degree it's cyclical. I know that it took a hit with the Fukushima reactor that kind of went offline in 2011, and then the depression of, of demand by Japan. But I wonder, so yeah, maybe you could tell our listeners, To start, what are the buckets within the natural resource industry that Sprout invests and where your own interest area lies? In the very near term, which is to say the next 12 to 18 months, I think the easiest
1: place to make money will be in precious metals. I believe that's a consequence of the policy response to the COVID-19 virus and the response to the slowdown in the economic recovery that we enjoyed for the 10 years prior to the year that we're in. By policy response, I mean, you know, quantitative easing, artificially low interest rates, debt and deficits, all of these things debase and destabilize various currencies, including the US dollar. And traditionally, during periods of time, when people are concerned about the purchasing power of their fiat-denominated savings, particularly when real interest rates are negative like they are now, precious metals have done well, and I don't see any alternative for the powers that be, the big thinkers, if you will, in their own minds, other than a continuation of fiscal policies that will be good for precious metals. So my suspicion is that both the good money and the easy money in the near term will be made in precious metals. The next part of what I'm going to say is for me much more speculative, which is to say that I believe that COVID or no COVID We were due for an unwinding of the economic recovery that we had enjoyed from 2009 to 2019. While I'm not an economist, a 10-year-long economic recovery is, in my experience, one that's very long of tooth, particularly if you believe, like me, that that recovery was more due to artificial stimulus and artificial low interest rates than it was to an increase in productivity an increase in trade or an increase in individual wealth. The combination of an unwinding of a decade of recovery punctuated by the global economic slowdown engendered by the virus, I think means that we are going to have a period of a softer economy. That isn't to say that we might not have an equities bull market. There seems to be a disconnect between Wall Street and Main Street. But my belief is that the real economy worldwide will reset lower for a while. Recessions used to be an expectation, but the big thinkers in the world have tried to make recessions illegal. And I don't think the markets care too much about what the big thinkers think. So my own own outlook is for a softer economy for three to four years. If I'm correct that we will have a softer economy, most of the natural resources sector Most basic materials will continue weak for a while. Now, the interesting thing about that is that I see it ultimately as an opportunity, not a near-term opportunity, but commodities have been priced below the total cost of production for some number of years. And if that continues, you will balance supply and demand by reducing supply. As you mentioned, these businesses are capital intensive. So starting up that supply when supply tightness begins to come into account won't be an easy matter, which is by way of saying, I think that natural resource investors in the next five years may very well enjoy two bull markets. The first one, which is underway in precious metals, and the second one, three years from now, four years from now, five years from now surprisingly strong rebound sort of like the the rebound in the year 2000 2001 across the whole range of industrial commodities
0: so what sectors have been operating below cost of capital for the last few years that well, you're certain- referencing
1: Certainly uranium, as an example. The International Energy Agency suggests that the fully loaded cost to produce a pound of uranium worldwide, including cost of capital, and importantly, adding back prior year write-downs, you know, where companies take them off the balance sheet, is about $60 a pound. So you make the stuff for 60 and you sell it for 30 You lose $30 a pound. And of course, being miners, you try and make it up on volume. Tough thing to do. The consequence of that is that about half of worldwide uranium production is shut down. And it's difficult to restart these mines. When the price of uranium goes up, it will be a while before there's a supply response. But probably a more dramatic example is oil and gas. The same agency, uh, International Energy Agency, suggests coincidentally that the price to produce a barrel of oil is somewhere between $50 and $60 a barrel. Again, not lifting cost, but total cost, including cost of capital. So again, you make the stuff for 60. This time you sell it for 40 or 42. You lose $20, $25 a barrel. And at present, you're doing this 83, 84 million times a day. We have seen other circumstances where oil was priced below the cost of production for two or three or four years. It can do that because of stranded capital. So much money got invested during the good times. But eventually, low oil prices mean, as they mean today, much, much, much less sustaining capital investment and almost no new project investment. And that impairs the ability of the industry to respond to developing tightness and an increase in oil prices by increasing production. They can't do it in the near term. Copper is a little illusory in the sense that it's very, very capital intensive, and there's a huge difference between cash production cost and total cost, which is to say full cycle exploration, all those things. But it's believed that the incentive price for a new copper mine worldwide is about $3.50 US cents a pound. So right now, the industry is making copper for $2.80 a pound that would cost them $3.50 a pound to replace. In the last 15 years, as an example, the average head grade, that is to say, the percentage of copper in ores being mined was around 1%. Today, it's about one half of 1%. So we're setting ourselves up for a circumstance throughout a lot of industrial commodities, agricultural minerals, base metals, oil and gas, uranium. We're setting ourselves up for real supply shortages as the productive capacity begins to be cannibalized, and three years from now, four years from now, five years from now, as we go into a cyclical economic recovery. There are other commodities that are mispriced where the market is out of kilter because of politics. My favorite one there is water. Water is to believe to be a right. And so water is allocated in most of the world politically rather than via markets. So you get circumstances as an example where water is used for such brilliant things as growing rice in the desert, like here in California. Mm-hmm. And eventually there's going to be an ugly, ugly, ugly reckoning around the lack of capital investment in water and the lack of real markets in water. The only way that you can make you know, really, really, really vast, broad mistakes in the world is through politics. And I'm afraid here in California that we're making absolutely stupendous mistakes around water, which might be at least for a while of advantage economically.
0: It's interesting. We actually spoke about this in 2012, and I believe at that time you cited something like 85 percent of the water used in California was used by three percent of the population, which was the agricultural sector. You have at a good memory. Time. You have a yeah. good
1: memory. That's correct.
0: I don't know if it still is, but but absolutely. I mean, the that's a huge factor that we have in general across our economy, where costs are seen as economic externalities, and they're not. We can't accurately price them. You know, I, the other thing I was thinking about when you were discussing oil and uranium, but especially with oil, is that these various commodities. Some of them are inputs for other commodities. I mean, you know, the classic example is like silver. Silver comes out of as a byproduct of all these other industrial mining operations. But even gold, you need oil and you need water. So, you know, I wonder. I wonder how much do these cycles sort of influence each other? Is it, you know, to do a a sort of an an accurate um, or a probabilistically accurate projection of where the price of any one particular commodity is going to be? How much is its price influenced, or its projections influenced by the price or behavior or cyclicality of its inputs?
1: Well, that's those are. Certainly issues. Certainly one of the things that has happened very recently, like in the last three or four months, has been the incredible increase in earnings performances of certain gold companies. Those are gold companies primarily located outside the United States where the product that they produce, gold, has been going up, but it's been going up also in a relatively strong commodity while the prices of their inputs are denominated in Canadian dollars and Australian dollars as an example. So their input costs have been falling, but particularly their energy input costs have been falling. And energy, I mean, gold mining, well, all mining is a very energy intensive business. So the incredible decrease that we've seen in oil and natural gas prices has been a real boon to mining companies. So what you say is true. Traditionally, the largest costs associated with the resource industries have been, well, the largest variable cost, of course, is exploration. But the the real costs are the cost of capital because it's a capital-intensive business. And then the so-called social costs, social license, rent, tax, those types of things. And um, (laughs) I could only wish those those were cyclical. They only seem to go up.
0: It seems that for most other sectors, the endogenous factors dominate in terms of determining price but in in the case of gold it always seems that every conversation about gold really focuses on exogenous factors that drive the demand you know like monetary policy pandemics QE you know financial crises i wonder with respect to gold to what degree is its price determined by endogenous factors which i imagine would be Pretty much isolated to the supply side? And then how much of it is really exogenous forces that basically lead to conversations like the one we started this episode with, which are macroeconomic?
1: In my experience, both are important. But because remember that gold is at once a consumer good in the form of um, high work index jewelry, and it's also money. So there are circumstances where the industry has done a relatively good job in promoting jewelry demand. And also, there has been a slow motion economic recovery in societies that put a real premium on gold as adornment. I'm thinking India, Pakistan, places like that. But the variable with regards to gold has always been investment demand And I would argue that the investment demand really is a function of two things. It's a function of faith in purchasing power of other savings instruments, and it's a function of real interest rates. If there are very, very high real interest rates, particularly high real interest rates in the world's reserve currency, the US dollar, then the default savings mechanism becomes the US 10-year treasury. If we have a circumstance like we have today, where the real return on a 10-year treasury is negative 1% a year for 10 years, which is to say the US government solemnly swears to give you back less money in 10 years than you gave them,
0: gold does well. So that kind of raises another question for me, and it's something I um, I thought about when I sat down to to put together the rundown for this episode because I haven't in the 3 plus years now that I've been doing Hidden Forces I haven't covered gold once not once on the show I mean peripherally we've never done a single episode dedicated to gold and I'm someone who owns gold I've invested in gold I want to be careful when I say I see its value I think I see its value or maybe it's you know I see what I want to see and so I'm also as someone who has sought gold as a as a form of insurance, I'm also aware of the fact that I didn't always think of it as insurance. There was a time when I thought that it was a hedge against inflation, but I've since revised that that perception. And I, I would think it would be very interesting to have now a bit of a philosophical discussion about what is gold and how do we measure its value? I'm curious, how would you answer that question? If I ask you what is gold and how we measure it, what would you say?
1: Well, first of all, I would praise you for describing it in the same fashion I see, which is to say as insurance. I mean, yes, it's many things more than that, but its value is subjective rather than objective. If you're an Indian national, as an example, the efficacy for gold, its value to you will be measured in... Savings in India, as an example, rupiah related, whereas in the United States it would be US dollars related. Different people need to pay different premiums for different amounts of insurance for different reasons, if you follow me. So mm. the value is subjective. I mean, I have been interested in gold as an investment. I've been philosophically interested in gold for a very long time. and Occasionally, I ponder Buffett's description of it as a pet rock. (laughs) The difference, of course, is that Buffett ignores 6,000 years of history. He ignores the fact that if you were a Vietnamese person at the end of the Vietnam War, you were either a prisoner or you had gold to pay to escape. He ignores the experience of the European Jewish diaspora. You know, he ignores a lot. And so I'm occasionally struck by the fact that there are psychological reasons for gold, maybe historical reasons. Why is it valuable? I mean, I understand that Aristotle described the reasons why it's money you know, it has utility, it's pretty. Mm -hmm. It has a use separate and apart from being money. It's malleable, it's durable, it's divisible, it's constant, all those things. It's wonderful money. But occasionally I too say, what gives it its value? Is it also a faith-based currency? So at the bottom of your question, the only thing that I can say is it has absolute function as money. It's perfectly designed to be money. What gives money value other than utility? And those become interesting questions. My temptation is to say history. I mean, certainly it can't be counterfeited, all those types of things. But behind all that, other than its luster, other than the fact that it does have utility, as an adornment why is it so efficient both as a medium of exchange and as a store of value and that's a very interesting question one one that i don't have an answer for
0: you know it's you kind of hit on exactly what i was contemplating when i was coming up with these questions and i actually also thought about whether it's even possible to think about the value of gold or Speculate about the price of gold without thinking about the value of or the faith in paper money, in the institution of paper money.
1: That's right where I was going, actually. We mm. you and I denominate gold in US dollars. European people denominate it in Euros. As Doug Casey famously says, the dollar is an IOU nothing. And the euro is a who owes you nothing. So, you have a difficult time, nominator by by the numerator, pardon me, if you're trying to value something in an instrument that is itself
0: valueless, you have an interesting challenge. So, I wonder there, maybe the next appropriate question would be, how would we go about trying to measure? It might be a fool's errand, I acknowledge that, but how might we try to go about measuring a population's or a people's faith in the currency of the realm? I don't know the answer to that. I do suspect
1: anecdotally that the increasing fondness that people have for gold is an expression of an increasing nervousness. Maybe not about the purchasing power of the dollar, but rather the maintenance of purchasing power of longer term US dollar denominated savings instruments.
0: Hmm. Because you know the again, like it's been, uh, I guess now about eight years, eight years, because it was July 26 when, when I last prepared any questions to ask you. And if you had asked me then what I would expect to have happened to the value of gold in the face of the balance sheet expansion that we've continued to see in the, in the years since since that period, I would have been surprised. And so it's kind of an open question for me. What the drivers will be going forward, given the economic circumstances, that we may very well see continued sluggish growth in the US. And yet, there are I think we've got a a political setup that has greased the wheels of money printing, so to speak. And I wonder in that type of environment, are we describing, and again, because it, it gives me pause that a lot of other people feel this way, but are we looking at a kind of stagflationary period? And in that world, in the last time we had a situation like that, gold, I think, actually, you'll know better than me. The, the returns, I think, were like 30% annualized over 10 years. But at the same time, we just got out of like a 10-year bull market in gold, so I'm curious what you think about that. I don't think that we have a replay in terms of gold
1: performance of the decade of the 1970s, which was, of course, the decade of stagflation. Those were my formative economic years, so I remember them well. And the reason that I don't think that we have the replay is that we came into that decade with gold price controlled. It had been fixed by fiat at $35 an ounce. So it came into the decade selling for probably a third of what the free market price would have been at that point in time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But the rest of what you say, I think is reasonably prescient. It's interesting in terms of Gold's place in the popular viewpoint that you say that you haven't done an article on gold for eight years. That's because I think your media product is something that you make a living on. And <laughs> you probably thought for some period of time that there simply wasn't enough interest in gold. Mm, correct. To do, to do an yeah. article on it. Uh, yeah. And I think that has a lot to do with with everything. One of the reasons that bear markets get oversold and bull markets get overbought is that people use price action to justify a narrative. And sometimes the price of something goes up because it's going up and it goes down because it's going down. If you begin to get, as an example, nervous about the economy and you begin to develop an interest In the narrative around defense mechanisms, including gold, and the price goes up, the fact that it went up, that price action begins to justify the narrative. And while, as you suggest, the policy response over the last 10 years to the liquidity crisis of 2008 was stimulative, people wanted to believe as a consequence of 2001 and 2008, that the big thinkers of the world, the government people, had things under control, that they stick-handled or managed the world through difficult circumstances. So there was still confidence in the economy. When you, as an example, lowered interest rates, you at once lowered the cost of capital to corporate America, which helped earnings at the same time that by reducing the amount of interest paid on savings deposits you increase the attraction of dividend yields so we had a disconnect between wall street and main street that continues today and part of that i think was due to confidence if we had something that shakes confidence and i my suspicion is that we are eroding confidence Every day gold becomes more attractive. But going back a little bit to the reason why you haven't seen fit despite the fact that you own it to talk about it, we're still in a circumstance where almost nobody cares. You come out of the Agora realm and I, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I, I populate a very strange community of gold bugs, you know. Hmm. But the truth is that there was a study published a couple years ago, and I believe it was JP. Morgan Chase, but I can't remember exactly who it was, a major u s investment house at any rate, that suggested that precious metal that the market share of precious metals and precious metals related securities was between one third of one percent and one half of one percent of savings and investment assets in the United States. and that the sort of three decade mean, was somewhere between one5 and and 2%. So when I'm telling you that I think we have a two-year or three-year bull market in gold, I'm not suggesting a circumstance like the Agora copywriters used to write about 30 years ago, the collapse of the US dollar and the ascendancy of gold, gold being the world's reserve currency, all that kind of stuff. I'm talking about a reversion to mean. I'm talking about gold's market share going from one half of 1% to 2%. But if it does that, Demand for precious metals and precious metals related securities goes somewhere between three and four times as high in the largest savings and investment market in the world. And ironically, I think if you saw gold at some number like $3,000 an ounce, that despite the fact that most of the price catch-up that had to take place would have taken place, in other words, when the price goes up, the absolute attraction of gold is less. <laughs> the psychological attraction to gold will be higher. It's a self-reinforcing but, cycle.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Of allocation. I mean,
1: that's, what, that's what happened in the 70s. You know, there was at the beginning of the decade of the 70s, there was an amazing argument for gold because of negative real interest rates, or at least very low real interest rates at the end of the decade the us 10 year treasury was yielding 15.6 <laughs> and <laughs> that high that high interest rate had slowed the economy so the real interest rate then was you know sort of 6 7% at the same time that the incentive to own gold was the lowest the interest in and the price for gold were highest because the price action gold up from $35 an ounce to $850 an ounce had in and of itself justified the narrative
0: no, that's such a great point. Um, no, I'm, I've seen those numbers as well, actually, and you know, further to your point, the impact on the gold price is at the margin. So it may seem like a small difference going from 0.5% or less than 0.5% to one5 to 2%, but that could be an enormous difference in price. And on top of that, I wonder to what degree you think we might see institutional buying, because I think central banks now we're heading to the second decade of net purchases by central banks after having been net sellers, beginning with some period in the 1990s. I wonder to what degree we might see that type of institutional buy-in and what impact would that have on the price? This kind of two-part question. I can't speak to
1: the central banks, except for I could understand central banks from countries that have a problem with American hegemony in terms of the way they operate their economies and societies. And, you know, There are some countries that have an absolute incentive away from US dollar holdings and in favor of gold as a way to reduce American political control over them. I get that. I can't really speak to central bank purchases. What I can tell you as a Sprout employee is that interest in gold among the largest institutional investors in the world, endowments, pension plans, even sovereign wealth funds, is really coming alive. We were engaged, we meaning Sprott, as an institution for five or six or seven years in propagandizing global 1000 investors. Those are the biggest 1000 investors in the world. And really it was uh, (laughs) an exercise in the wilderness for some period of time. Now we're taking incoming calls as opposed to making outgoing calls the interest around big insurance companies uh, big pension plans and big endowments is very high and you can understand why you know think about a an endowment with a sort of a 30 year point of view that puts you know 15% of their assets in us 10 year treasuries they are absolutely positively without a doubt guaranteed to lose 1% a year compounded over 10 years. Hmm. Jim Grant describes that as return free risk. So yeah, he really,
0: says he's great. Really gold
1: is competing with return free risk for those investors and that's not a very tough fight.
0: Yeah, so that's also interesting because you guys are in a position to actually have some proprietary information flow there. You know, When was the last time that you saw this kind of uptake in interest that you can recall?
1: In terms of the big, big, big allocators, which is to say the big pension funds and big endowments, the well, the last time would have been the 70s, and I didn't inhabit a part of the market where I had access to that information. This is new in my career.
0: Really? More than, let's say, 2011? Absolutely. That's so interesting. Yeah, when did that interest begin? When did you begin to notice it? 2000, 2019, about a year ago. Yeah,
1: now, you know, you, you know, the truth is that we had been selling gold as a diversification tool. Selling, <laughs> we had been attempting to sell gold as a diversification tool to these large investors, beginning about 2012. So we sort of joke internally that we've worked 10 years to be overnight successes, and we had no response. But we're getting a lot of response to that pitch now.
0: Is that? I mean, I, I guess it's kind of like asking the question, how do these institutional investors see gold as a portfolio diversifier? Do they see it taking the place of bonds, or is it something kind of all its own? I think
1: they're regarding it as a separate asset class. I actually think that the institutions that uh, I have talked to have a very sober view of it. They're, of course, from my point of view, underweighted, but they regard it as an insurance class, or some of them as non-correlated and volatile liquidity.
0: How much do you think... Well, I guess also, I also wonder what sort of institutional infrastructure and policy do these firms have in place? Are they already kind of there in a position to to be able to handle this kind of inflow? And two, in the kind of mid-2000s when gold was beginning to hit its stride, and when I say mid-2000s, I mean like 2004 or so during the last bull run, one of the arguments that you heard was the beginning of these ETFs like GLD and some of these other gold ETFs and I think those were I think 2004 was GLD and I think the iShares IAU Gold Trust was 2005 but how important of a role does that play this time around since I, for the most part there hasn't been a huge uh, at least not proportional to ownership creation of new derivatives products in the space That I'm aware of. Well, GLD has been
1: enormously helpful, I think, in terms of democratizing gold ownership. Gold has always been easy to buy and sell for those who developed the capacity to do it. But as all of the other aspects of our life become more securitized, the ability to hold gold surrogate products, which is to say ETFs and securities accounts, has made them broadly more accessible to many, many people. GLD, remember, started as a retail product and it was an enormously successful retail product. The very liquidity that it enjoys now means it's a great institutional product. If you are you know, somebody like Norges Bank, the Norwegian sovereign wealth fund, and you're responsible for a trillion dollar portfolio. If you want to take a 1% position in something, and I'm not suggesting that they are or are not long gold, I'm just using them to illustrate things, to get on and off a meaningful position if you're managing a trillion dollars is a real chore. The liquidity associated with the gold futures market has always been fantastic. But for various reasons, futures haven't been considered asset classes by some big institutional investors. But certainly GLD gives the largest investors in the world liquidity that they need to enter and exit seamlessly. It's been enormously important as a facility for the gold market.
0: So, what about gold equities? I guess one, what kind of interest are you seeing in equities? And when people talk about investing in gold equities, what do they mean? <laughs> that would use up the whole interview. <laughs> <laughs> well, we got time. So. Uh, so. Well, let's start
1: at the beginning. Gold bull markets and even recoveries from oversold bottoms, which are much more frequent than gold bull markets, follow fairly predictable patterns over time. Gold moves first, the metal moves before the equities do. The, equ- the equities don't anticipate the move in the metal traditionally. And we saw
0: that this time. Gold really. Why is that? Why don't they anticipate the I move? I can.
1: Uh, I have my suspicions, but when gold is out of favor, it's normally so deeply out of favor that nobody gives a damn about the equities and they're not anticipating anything. Mm. Uh, They're just bored to it. When the metal moves, two things happen. The metal moving begins to stimulate interest in the whole topic. You know, gold was a forgotten asset class in the last decade. But the second thing that happens is, you know, 6 months, 9 months after you've seen the move in the commodity price, you see the impact of that move first in the income statement. You know, higher product prices generally swell margins. And then in the balance sheet, where the generation of cash begins to show up in the balance sheet. Because gold is a cyclical commodity during periods of time in the gold market when life is rough, which is to say when prices are low the industry executives become extremely conservative. And that's important too, because in the beginning of a gold bull market, they don't do any stupid things with the inbound cash. (laughs) Uh, I mean, later on, they can be counted on to make dumb acquisitions, to make dumb investment decisions. When the income increases too much and the free cash increases too much, the encouragement to be stupid becomes overwhelming and they do become stupid. But in the circumstance that we're in right now, margins increase, cash increases, the balance sheet increases, and the willingness to do something stupid after a bear market is fairly low. So there's this wonderful virtuous circle in the near term. Always the biggest and the best, the most liquid move first. The gold community itself has had their (laughs) faith in themselves challenged in the bear market. And so even gold bugs, rather than going immediately for leverage, go to the finest, the biggest, the best, the most liquid equities, the guys with the uh, most operating margin, the best balance sheets.
0: What are we talking about there? I mean, large cap miners, for example? The Barracks, the Newmonts, the Francos,
1: the Wheatons, guys with very, very, very stout operating margins, stout balance sheets, New York Stock Exchange listings, lots of liquidity. What happens after that is a couple things. The valuation discrepancies between the best of the best and the rest begin to get extreme. With all of the money concentrated in the top of the sector, the trading liquidity and the share prices escalate there, but they get stuck down below. And two things happen. The early equity investors who came into the best of the best begin to look for relative value down the quality trail, at the same time that value arbitrage begins to happen, which is to say that the best of the best enjoy a lower cost of capital, and they <laughs> begin to look at doing takeovers with people who have unequal cost of capital. And so, the equity rally begins to democratize.
0: So, you're saying capital goes directly into some of the juniors, and then also some of the majors by the juniors and M&A deals. Correct. Correct. And where are we in that cycle? Oh,
1: very early on. I mean, we've seen decent M&A, but most of the M&A has been horizontal M&A, which is to say people merging for strategic reasons or merging to get scale. But my suspicion is we've got another 18 months of very stout merger and acquisition markets in gold.
0: So what have we seen in gold equities? Has there been a move at all? Is it very, very early? If I'm right about the direction of the gold price,
1: and I think I am, then we're fairly early on. My friend Ross Beatty has said we're in the third or fourth inning of a game that's likely to go extra innings. <laughs>
0: mm. Certainly
1: the last six months, well, really, I guess the last nine months, you could say we've been in an equities bull market. But all the move at the beginning was concentrated on the great big guys. The last three months, we've seen a much broader based and much more explosive move. What's interesting this time is that in prior recoveries, Gold would go from the ultra-large caps to the large caps to the mid caps to the juniors and then to the hyper juniors, you know, the sort of 50 million market cap explorers. Just in the last 60 days, we've seen an explosion in the hyper juniors, a real speculative explosion. And I don't know if this is Robin Hood money coming in. I mean, I don't know what it is. I've never seen a market that has democratized, gone from institutional to retail punter as fast as this market has. And that makes me a little nervous about a meaningful pullback in the near term.
0: That's very interesting. You mean in equities or also in the price of bullion? In the
1: equities. I I think bullion has a real friend in Congress and the executive.
0: (laughs) Really? That's interesting. Well, I want to pick your brain more on that, Rick, as well as what we're seeing in equities. But we're going to move the second part of this conversation into the subscriber overtime For anyone who is new to the program, Hidden Forces is listener supported. If you want to access the rest of this conversation, as well as the transcripts and rundowns to each episode, head over to patreon.com slash hidden forces. There's also a link in the summary page to this episode with instructions on how to connect the overtime feed to your phone so that you can continue to listen to these extra discussions, just like you listen to the regular podcast. Rick, stick around, we're going to move the second half of this conversation into the overtime. Great. Today's episode of Hidden Forces was recorded in New York City. For more information about this week's episode, or if you want easy access to related programming, visit our website at hiddenforces.io and subscribe to our free email list. If you want access to overtime segments, episode transcripts, and show rundowns full of links and detailed information related to each and every episode, check out our premium subscription available through the Hidden Forces website or through our Patreon page at patreon.com slash Forces. Today's episode was produced by me and edited by Stylianos Nicolaou. For more episodes, you can check out our website at hiddenforces.io. Join the conversation at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at hiddenforcespod or send me an email at at dk.hiddenforces.io. As always, thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.